it's really important, I think, for policymakers to understand that the Forest Service doesn't have nearly enough money to do the thing that they are promising. And if they are not given many multiples of the resources that they currently have, they're not going to achieve it. What I would like to see is, okay, 50 million acres. That means if we're going to do it over 10 years, we have to average 5 million acres a year. We can't do 5 million acres a year right now, not even close. So what is the plan? What is the ramp to get to some level where it's going to have to be more than five? We're going to have to, at the end of this 10-year period, be doing probably 7.5 million acres a year. So what is the plan to ramp to 7.5 million acres over some number of years? How many people will have to be trained? How much will it cost to employ those people in a way that they'll stick around and not be poached by local fire departments and um, CAL FIRE? Hey, folks. Welcome to Life of Fire podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Montai, and today we are going to be chatting with Michael Wara. Michael is an environmental law and policy expert. He conducts research on domestic and international climate policy, and he is the director of the Climate and Energy Policy Program at Stanford. That's a lot. Basically, Michael deals with the stuff that kind of feels sort of messy to people like me who are not lawyers and who physically grimace at words like policy or EPA regulations. But really, Michael's work is pretty essential to actually getting stuff done on the ground. And I am very grateful that there are people like him in the world who are voluntarily wading into environmental and climate regulations and fighting for improvements kind of from the inside and uh, charging head on into all of this messiness to make the world a little less messy for the rest of us. So we broke up our conversation into two parts. Uh, the first conversation, today's conversation, will be focusing primarily on Michael's work, as well as his perspectives on Biden's new multi-billion dollar plan to reduce fire risk in vulnerable communities. I actually follow Michael on Twitter, as is the case with a lot of the people on this podcast, actually, but I've always really appreciated the perspective that he brings to the FIRE conversation, and I saw that he was quoted in a New York Times piece a few weeks ago about Biden's new plan to reduce fire risk in communities, and I wanted to get him on the show to just chat about that, but we ended up kind of veering into a couple different topics, and that's kind of why we broke this up into two different conversations, so... The next episode, the next part of the conversation will be put up in two weeks. So stay tuned for that. Um, other news, some housekeeping. We have a few more Life of Fire calendars available for those who want to make a donation of $30. And the calendar is full of photos that our listeners submitted from prescribed fires and cultural burns that they've been a part of for the last few years. It's a really cool calendar. And if you're interested, uh, reach out. We can get you one lined up if you send us an email at lifewithfirepodcast at gmail.com. You can also find the information about donating on our website, lifewithfirepod.com. And if you'd like, you can donate to our Patreon at the $20 or $30 tier and also get a calendar. So you've got some options. I'll link to all of those websites in this episode's show notes. And I think that's all I've got for you. So thank you for listening, for sharing, subscribing, all of the above. Really appreciate it. If you guys would like to leave a review, that would be awesome. Uh, the algorithm loves that. And so do we. We love hearing what you guys think about the podcast. Uh, also happy to hear critiques. If you guys have anything that you maybe wanted to add to the conversation or things that you're you're missing or that we're missing, uh, we'd love to hear about that as well. So that all being said, let's get into the episode. Here is Michael Wara 
and I hope you enjoy the conversation. So I direct this program at Stanford that is, um, it's something I created out of a desire, out of experiences working with students and trying to put them in policymaking roles and policymaking situations as a different way to educate around legal and regulatory issues. And, and I started doing that about a decade ago. And my background is as an air pollution lawyer and a, and a kind of administrative law person, mm -hmm. climate oriented, energy oriented. So we were doing that pretty successfully. And, and then of course the 2017 wildfire season happened. And so all of a sudden energy and wildfire in California were very much overlapping. Mm -hmm. And so I got involved doing a lot, doing a lot of the work initial early work thinking about how to manage PG&E's issues and Edison's issues with fire, um, whether there was legislation needed to manage the impacts on regular people, on ratepayers, um, and then the bankruptcy, but, but as, and I, I think I, I was appointed to the Wildfire Commission because um, of the work on utilities and the Wildfire Commission in California was primarily about utilities. Um, but I came away from that experience, having had the opportunity to sit and listen to a lot of folks who think about wildfire risk management and really get to know also the insurance industry, who's the part of the, the parts of the insurance industry that are working on wildfire with a really different perspective than when I went in where sort of like, why are we like California has a $21 billion utility wildfire insurance fund. It's called the wildfire fund. And, and I was sort of like, why are we buying a $21 billion insurance policy before we take steps to reduce our risk? And what would those steps be? And the thing is that in the utility space, you, know, you can criticize it a lot. Like there's lots of problems, but there are there's planning that is very goal oriented where at the beginning of every year, every utility sits down and says, how much wildfire risk do we have? And they have to quantify it. And then they have to say, here are the steps we're going to take and how much will each step reduce our risk? And what really got me was just that nothing like that was happening outside of the utility space. And it should like at this point, you know, we need to be like, this is a crisis in California, in Oregon, in Washington, and it's primarily a public health crisis as much as anything else, like a smoke related crisis. So I just got interested and started working on this issue and, and, and trying to approach it, approach the way that the land management agencies work from the perspective of air pollution, because that's what I work on and a lot of my, my background and also um, from sort of trying to apply some of the lessons and the approaches that are really becoming common in the utility space, but appear very uncommon, you know, in the land management space where it's sort of like, well, we have more money. That's great. We're going to do more. Okay. How much will that more incrementally reduce the risk that we currently face if we're a community living in the WUI or you know, a particular community, if we're a grass valley 
in California, which scares me, like keeps me up at night from a wildfire risk perspective. And no one seems to have those answers. And so it creates all kinds of interesting science to do and um, interesting policy work. And, and it's, it's fun to ask awkward questions or not fun, but it's important maybe, you know, like what is the plan? I mean, even that, you know, another thing that really struck me in the Wildfire Commission was hearing from CAL FIRE where CAL FIRE would, would come and, and say, oh, we're gonna treat 500,000 acres a year. Question, how many acres do you currently treat? 35,000. What is your actual plan to get from 35,000 to 500,000 then? No plan. And, and that's gotten better to, to be fair to CAL FIRE. Like the situation with CAL FIRE is, is not where someone like me would prefer it to be, but it's better than it was through, they are moving as an agency and they're kind of a super tanker of an agency. So it takes a while to turn. Um, but, uh, and I think the Forest Service is kind of in the same boat, maybe with less money than CAL FIRE. Um, but uh, it's, yeah, so I've gotten just, you know, it's an evolution that reflects the policy concerns in California. Um, and, and, and um, you know, given my, my job at Stanford is to basically come up with interesting climate and energy pro problems where there are needs for policymakers and where our analytical firepower can be useful, whether that's, you know, free legal work, like to evaluate a question or, you know, we're, we're trying to build a model that will estimate PM 2.5 emissions from 10 year land management scenarios in California. So we could say like, would it be better if there was more good fire from a smoke perspective? Um, anyway, it's, it's, it's a fun job and it's, um, it's not traditional, but I think it provides really interesting value for students. And then we get to do a lot of good work for policymakers too. So it's, it's good. Yeah, where do your students end up, end up ending up, I guess? <laughs> well, there's a huge variety, you know, uh, the lawyers oftentimes end up in public interest practice. Um, so one attorney that I trained, I'm so proud of him, he just won the case against Gwinnock, um, which you may have heard of that this is this polo development in Lake County that's burned multiple times in the recent history. He's the attorney from um, Center on Biological Diversity that brought the initial case saying, hey, maybe you shouldn't build a giant development here. Here are the 25 reasons why. And the court adopted a few of them in forcing the county to go back to the drawing board. Like you can't cause traffic jams for everybody who already lives there when they have to evacuate from the wildfire that will occur. Um, and so some of, some of the lawyers go into practice like that. I, a number of my students have started energy startups. Um, a number are um, a lot of academics. You know, there's folks that are finishing, they're on a more traditional kind of professor track because we work with a lot of doctoral students. Um, but I think whatever they do, we end up hopefully giving them some exposure to what the policy process, at least in California, looks like. And I think that's great. You know, it's like a, it's like a really, it's a it's not necessarily what they'll end up doing but maybe it'll inform what they do and help it be more relevant to policymakers 
what's uncommon about what we do is taking that clinical model and using it to do a multidisciplinary project, right? Like in our, I teach a class called Smoke. And last quarter, we were doing a bunch of work related to um, indoor air quality and purple air monitors in public buildings. And also looking at the use of CEQA in prescribed fire in California and what's actually happening on the ground, like doing a survey and trying to understand the utilization of that law and whether what there is were- CEQA? Oh, sorry. <laughs> CEQA is the California Environmental Quality Act. It's, it's the equivalent to uh, NEPA, right? The environment, it's like the environmental impact report, impact statement kind of law. But in California, it's a much more powerful tool than the federal one. And so it can be, that can be good or it can be really bad depending on how it's applied. It's just so funny how it takes all kinds, like in this, in this industry, like the amount of, the amount of like depth and like diversity of jobs that people find within the fire realm is so fascinating. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's super cool. Um, yeah, so I, I read that article, the New York Times article that you were featured in a couple of days ago, and I saw that you had posted on it about it on Twitter, and that was kind of what I was hoping to, to touch on, although I'm really glad we got all that background, like that was really fascinating. Okay. Um, but yeah, looking at that like 10 year multi-billion dollar plan to do some um, to do some adaptation. I'm just curious, you know, at one point you said like this can look like it was, you know, problem solved. Um, can you explain what you meant by that by saying like it's not actually like this is, you know, we're not quite there yet. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that's really struck me, and this comes from even reading like older books by Stephen Pine is that the Forest Service has been saying a lot of really positive things since about 1980. But the budgets that the Forest Service has to actually operate within have not changed as much as the policy documents. And this used to be a thing that really mattered to um, you know, communities that surround, that are, that are close to federal lands but in California, it's become a concern to everyone at this point because in many times, many times a year, you can't go outside when because um, it's not safe from a from an air quality perspective because of fires burning on Forest Service land. So California is getting a lot more focused on like what is actually happening on the forest units that are driving risk, both local risk, like what happens to Greenville or Grass Valley, and larger regional risk. Is it safe to go out and exercise outdoors in the Bay Area during the summer months? Um, and so I've started to look at some of these documents and, and, and be concerned that they might, a politician, a policymaker might read these documents and think, okay, like the Forest Service says they're going to treat 50 million acres. Great. I would love it if they accomplish that goal. I fully support them achieving that goal. I think it is great that they're talking about thinning plus prescribed fire as the key solution. Thinning is not going to do it. We need the fire too. Um, but it's really important, I think, for policymakers to understand that the Forest Service doesn't have nearly enough money to do the thing that they are promising. And if they are not given 
many multiples of the resources that they currently have, they're not going to achieve it. Um, and so, and, and, and I actually think in some ways, the amount of money they've been given so far is almost dangerous because it seems like a lot, $3 billion. That's a lot of money. Even over five years, that's a lot of money. But it's not enough to actually make a difference in the problem. And so you'd be under, it'd be understandable for a policymaker to think, well, we gave them a lot of money. The problem is just as bad. What's going on? This is a failure of implementation. The Forest Service doesn't know what they're doing. And that's not true. I think the Forest Service knows what to do. They just don't have the money to do it. And that's a really consistent, you know, you talk to folks um, working in the, in the units in Region 5, and it's a huge challenge just to plan fuel treatments. There aren't enough people on staff to, to even plan. And most of the prescribed fire that happens is happening by a good neighbor provision, right? Where outside actors, either the state or very often uh, land conservancies or conservancies in various regions are, are planning and paying for fuel treatment, hazardous fuels treatment. And so I, I, I just felt it was really important to say out loud and very clearly, this is not enough money to get the job done, even close. It's not enough money to get the job done in California let alone the Western United States. What would kind of make this more realistic in your mind? Or maybe like what does, what is sort of beneficial about this plan? Maybe getting it in front of more people's, or getting it in more people's, uh, you know, worldview. Like, is there anything that's sort of benefiting us from this? And also, is there anything that you can think of that would kind of like take it back to like ground level and make it a little more realistic? Well, I think one thing that I, I really like about this policy statement is that one, one big issue in the Forest Service is that there are many risks to using prescribed fire as a tool if you're a Forest Service employee and not a ton of rewards. Um, and everybody remembers the fire in Los Alamos. Um, and, and, you know, there have been, there've been a couple of modest, like pretty insignificant, but still real escapes in California. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people in the Forest Service probably remember the Capels fire. Um, there was the Estrada fire uh, earlier this year that was a CAL fire, prescribed fire that escaped prescription. Mm -hmm. So people are nervous. And last summer, after the Tamarack fire blow up, Chief Moore was not, it was not clear that he was willing to deploy his political capital to defend his employees. Um, and he was it, not necessarily his fault. I don't blame him. He's got a boss too, and his boss has a boss, and etc. But the I think it's I think it's it's really good for the agency to step out and put its foot down right now and say this is important, and these are the tools that we think are the solutions. Um, and I happen to agree. You know, I think I agree, and and most or pretty much every forest science person I know agrees with the tools they're putting out as as the right ones. But, and I, so I guess I, I look at this document and I think it's good to articulate this. It's good to also message to your employees that this is the path forward. But I also would love to see like a plan 
saying 50 million acres over 10 years is not a plan because as we all know, there aren't enough people that are trained to actually use fire. Um, and, and there isn't an apparatus, a planning apparatus to actually plan and execute this uh, type of a strategy. And there isn't the money. And so one thing that has made me as a, as a Californian pull my hair out over the last few years is watching forest service chiefs before energy and natural resources and other committees in Congress say they have enough money for fuels management. And that's happened repeatedly where the, where, where senators and congressional reps are like begging them to ask for more money and the, and the chiefs will sit and say, we have adequate resources to accomplish our job. <laughs> and that's just manifestly not true. Um, and so what I would like to see is, okay, 50 million acres. That means if we're gonna do it over 10 years, we have to average 5 million acres a year. We can't do 5 million acres a year right now, not even close. So what is the plan? What is the ramp to get to some level where it's going to have to be more than five we're going to have to at the end of this 10-year period be doing probably seven and a half million acres a year so what is the plan to ramp to seven and a half million acres over some number of years how many people will have to be trained how much will it cost to employ those people in a way that they'll stick around and not be poached by local fire departments and um cal fire which is, which is always going to pay them more and offer better benefits and like more power to them. I, I don't understand. I, like it's an act of love to stay in the forest service firefighting ranks at this point. Um, what is the, what is the strategy around legal permitting? Because if we actually were doing broadcast burns or, you know, something like that on seven and a half million acres, of US owned forest in the West, there are going to be some pretty significant air quality challenges. Um, so I guess I would like to see an execution strategy that's largely missing from this document, because that's going to inform also the adequacy of the budget ask. Um, and, and, and it would allow us to measure, you know, if, if we think I personally, based on my experience and research, think it's it's realistic in the West to say that if we had a big program, we could do this for $1,000 an acre. So let's map out the money we have and then, and then figure out what the ask is going to be of Congress um, and taxpayers mm -hmm. for when we run out of money and we're not done. And, mm -hmm. and I think just taking you know the money the three billion that's in hand and dividing it by five is probably not the way to do that mm -hmm. it was great apparently in the press conference regarding the rollout the u.s forest service or maybe it was the department of agriculture communications person did acknowledge that this would probably cost 50 billion dollars not three and a half mm -hmm. um, so that's a, that's good that's some important honesty but that's not in the report and it would be easy for a normal policy staffer or let alone a representative who's never going to watch that conference that press conference to not realize that if they're not intimately familiar with this issue mm -hmm. so like putting reality aside <laughs> and understanding that we do have a lot of money to spend here but 
I think this is, I think everyone understands this is going to require some like seriously radical both action and like policy changes. Um, I'm curious, like what kind of radical, maybe not necessarily rooted in current reality actions you can think of that you'd like to see implemented? <laughs> well, you know, I guess my, so ra thinking radically, mm -hmm. right? I think we have a set of in environmental planning tools and permitting tools that largely are at cross purposes with the science. Where the, the if, if you wanna go out and do a prescribed fire, you gotta get, I mean, it's, it's important to have a plan so you don't burn down the town over the next ridge. That's one thing. But the idea that um, the Native American archaeological resources that may be in a location and the um, flora and fauna that may be in a location need to have like complex environmental permitting in order to act, I think is um, backwards, right? Our law gets this backwards. Fire is natural. Fire, it's, it's as natural as a rainstorm in fire evolved forests. And what we have done is the unnatural thing that needs to be permitted, frankly, right? We humans removing, or Europeans removing Native Americans from the landscape, removing cultural burning as a, as a force and then suppressing all the other fires that happen is the unnatural thing. And then logging and replanting in monoculture, densely planted forests that are oriented toward, you know, timber productivity over a 50 to 80 year cycle. Those are the unnatural things. And reintroduction of fire is both natural, an acknowledgement of people's role in nature, like that we're not separate, and necessary for risk reduction. So, you know, I would like, first of all, for me, I would want to flip that script and say that the natural thing is ecologically sensitive intervention in the landscape. And the unnatural thing is pretending like a wildfire that's catastrophic is an act of God and has nothing to do with anything that we've ever done on the landscape. Now, of course, you know, climate change makes those wildfires more likely, but, uh, that's only a, a piece of what's going on. And when we have a lot of agency uh, when it comes to how that problem plays out. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I would say, like thinking broadly and, and I, your conversation with Sasha Perlman, I thought really articulated this nicely is that this needs to be, this is, this is like, a, I, I just got legal and wonky with you, Amanda, but this is like a, this is also just a cultural issue. And maybe that piece should come first, right? That we need to change our cultural relationship with fire and recognize its value um, in, in keeping the ecosystems around us healthy. Like one thing for me, like working, um, I've, I've had this incredible privilege of getting to work with people like Bill Tripp and Lenya Quinn Davidson 
um, and others who work in this space, Morgan Varner from Tall Timbers. And um, they've changed the way that I see ecosystems when I am out in nature. And I spend a lot of time, I'm lucky to live in a place where I can step out my door and be on trails. And I look at the ecosystems around me in a totally different way. I think that's unusual where I live. You know, I'm riding in Rodeo Valley or in Redwood Creek by Mere Woods. And I look at the area and I think this place needs some good fire, man. It is overgrown. It's got way too much dead fuel on the ground. Like think how much healthier the ecosystem would be and how, how happy the animals would be if there was some good prescribed fire happening here. And I think almost no one in my neighborhood feels that way. And so we need to change that. Like there's a, there's a, there's a, just a public understanding and education thing that, and, and if, if we could, then I think we would, we, we would be able to achieve Sasha's vision, which is, you know, fire stewards in every community that are, you know, the, where, where the grassroots demands and is capable of using fire in their community to maintain the resilience of their community and also of the ecosystems around it. Um, that's a truly radical vision. Um, and, and in many ways, you know, that education issue is one, it probably needs to come first. The law is not gonna change until people change. Another, another thing I think about wearing my lawyer hat is basic concepts of property ownership, where like we, we Europeans think about property as this thing that we own and that gives us stuff, right? Like we get to take the trees, we get to put our house there and have our backyard there and the property is there to serve us. And I think Native Americans have a much more reciprocal idea of what it means to live in a place. And maybe we could evolve. We're not going to throw away, you know, a thousand years of European English law on how property ownership works, but we could start to build in some of those Native American concepts into the responsibilities of owning property so that it wouldn't be okay to neglect your land and allow a bomb to develop there that's going to go off some windy September afternoon, right? You, you have a res legal responsibility. Or, or if you didn't maintain your land that way, it would be a nuisance. And there, we kind of tiptoe up to that in some ways in certain parts of California and certain parts of the West. But it's not, it's mostly around things like defensible space and the fire department. It's not really like big landowners. And if, if you had responsibility to maintain land like that, so that, you know, seasonal hotshot crews would have an easier job and would maybe have a little bit less work to do. Um, it would change the economics of land ownership also in really important ways. And you might be more thoughtful about like, well, can I really manage and maintain this big plot of land I might want to buy? All right. That's what we've got for you today. Leaving you with a little bit of a cliffhanger because this is a two-part conversation. So the next one will be live in two weeks. And I want to thank Michael for coming on the show. Just endless amount of perspective and insight into uh, wildland fire regulation and policy and law and kind of the broader 
climate and environmental piece as well. So really appreciate his perspectives and I hope you guys did as well. And I think that's all I've got for you today. Remember to like and subscribe to the podcast if you feel like it. And don't forget to tell a friend about this episode if you enjoyed it or if you learned something. So thanks as always, and we'll catch you on the next one.